Before we begin this episode, just a trigger warning. The content within this podcast discusses themes of pedophilia and sexual assault. Help is always available. And if you need to speak with someone today, call Lifeline Australia on 13 11 14. You've reached the Entertainment Hotline, a chatter podcast. Listen as celebs dial in to chat with Anita Annabelle. Chatter.com.au and Media Week's Head of Entertainment. Dial 1 for movie stars. Dial 2 for streaming stars. Dial 3 for TV stars. Dial 4 for music stars. Or press 0 to speak with the star of the show herself, Anita. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Entertainment Hotline. My name is Anita Annabelle and I am your host. Today's episode is probably one of the most powerful that we have recorded so far. Despite increased discourse on the subject of consent, every day an average of 85 sexual assaults are reported in Australia and an estimated 90% of sexual assaults go unreported. Investigative journalist Jess Hill returns to SBS with Asking For It. And she is on a mission to spark vital discussions on consent and the epidemic of sexual assault that still impacts millions of Australians. In this interview, I use my own experience of sexual assault to delve deeper into the topic alongside Jess, who discusses consent, rape culture and ways in which changemakers are bringing these issues to the forefront. Asking for it premiered on Thursday, 20th of April on SBS and SBS On Demand and continues with two more episodes. Here is Jess Hill. I am so excited to be talking to you. I know excited is probably not the right word given the documentary that you are hosting and investigating and researching Uh, called Asking For It. It's such a powerful, powerful uh, topic that I feel like everyone needs to be educated in. But before we talk about that, I would love to talk about your career, which focuses primarily on social issues and gendered violence. Why is this such a a topic that you're so passionate about? Yeah, um, I guess it's sort of interesting because I I came from like something that was definitely based around social justice, but, you know, you know, was was reporting in the Middle East and, you know, doing various other things before I landed with this topic in about 2014. Um, and, I mean, I started writing about gendered violence because it wasn't something that was just underreported. It was unreported um, largely except for, you know, true crime that was just starting to become more popular. And every time that I thought, well, I've, I've done my last story on this topic, um, I'm going to move on to a different one, someone else would contact me with a bigger story that I had never heard about. And I think when I started to understand that this really isn't just about violence, that this is at its heart about power and control and love sometimes and attachment and entrapment, um, and that these dynamics aren't just what we see in private, that this is not just a closed, behind closed doors dynamic, but that it's mirrored throughout our public systems, throughout our legal system, throughout our public institutions, um, and that what victim survivors, 
and offenders um, are operating in is a whole context where this power and control dynamic is is encouraged and is valorized. Um, and I I always feel that there is still so much to do, so much that I haven't even touched yet. Um, and every other day I've, I'll meet someone who says that the work helped them in some fundamental way to either understand their own experience or to or to leave a, a horrible um, experience or horrible partner um, or to seek help, and I guess that's what I'm I'm really trained on. My my dedication is to helping people find the language to describe their experiences, why they may accept what they accept or why they may do what they do. Mm-hmm. And one thing that you and I spoke about before we started recording was I'm a, a a survivor of sexual assault myself and watching this documentary, I learned so much. So, of course, at first it was quite triggering, but then once I got to keep going with it, I learned so much about my own journey and mm. there were things that I discovered that I didn't even realise that I had behaved in a certain way afterwards and I didn't realise that that was something that other people did and there were names for it. And Mm -hmm. before I guess we go into that, because I do have, you know, a lot of questions, there is something I want to ask you. Sexual violence and sexual assault to me can be such a grey area because Mm -hmm. it doesn't just mean penetrative in my opinion, mm. how can it be de- defined in your eyes? Yeah, I mean, then it's not just in your opinion. I mean, legally, it's defined much more broadly. And I guess essentially, sexual violence is just an umbrella term that brings in so many different sexual acts that are basically a sexual act that is committed against a person's will. Um, and obviously, this can be um, against anyone, adult or child, um, and it can include everything from sexual harassment to stalking um, to sexual exploitation to image-based abuse to indecent assault and then, of course, to rape. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's and, – and rape, of course, may not be what people necessarily define it as, which is I did not want to have sex and that person forced me to. It could be that – I consented to the beginning of a sexual act and then that act became something that I did not consent to. Now, that is still rape. Um, It could be, you know, the term that's become a lot more well-known lately is stealthing. It could be that the sexual violence committed against you was that someone removed a condom um, without your knowledge and against your consent. Um, So there's, there's so many different ways in which sexual violence can occur that, I think a lot of people downplay and, and you know, you end up hearing from people who say they never reported or, you know, forgetting reporting for a minute but never told anyone because they didn't think it was serious enough or because they thought they were partly to blame because they said yes to some things and so they felt like that that had just opened the floodgates and that they should have realised earlier that they should have refused even though what we're seeing more and more, um, and this is reflected in um, the interview with Dr. Vanita Parekh, who's um, a forensic examiner who looks at um, victim survivors after they've been assaulted and talks to them. And she says so much more now we're seeing 
what acts that begin consensually morph into violence, which is not consensual. Um, and so that's that's a I think that's probably one of the things that I most want to come across in this documentary that like consent is a an interactive and ongoing discussion. It's not like you say yes and then you've said yes to everything. You know, this is if you know every piece of the sexual activity can be negotiated, can be you know felt out. And if you want to say no to something, if you want to say no to being choked, if you want to say no to a particular uh, part of the sex act, that is absolutely your right. Mm. And if that person disregards that or does not seek your consent to do something, particularly something that that is that kind of extreme and and dangerous, um, that that is a violation yeah i think one thing that you know and i want to focus heavily on my experience to be able to to get the best from you in terms of responses is that when i was assaulted last year there was this person i consented at first and then um as it was happening i said no no repeatedly because it was hurting or there was change in positions and afterwards I really questioned did that happen to me was this was this assault was this is this considered rape and mm. you do question because you have a bodily response and you allow it to happen and you're saying yes I want this but then mm. when it changes you then start to question, did that really happen? Sure, yeah. And I, I mean, gosh, so many people have been in your shoes, Anita, and had that experience. Um, and yeah, and questioned themselves, doubted themselves as to, well, either was it that bad, or yeah, did that did that even really happen? At what point did I say no? Did I say no loud enough? Um, did I even say no? Did I just freeze? Um, all of these things go through people's heads and they just go around and around and around, regardless of whether they intend to report or not. Um, and I guess the more that we talk about this, I hope the more people will feel comfortable just maybe even asking those questions or talking to people that they trust about this um, rather than just having it be so internalised and such a, a, you know, private torturous you know um re tape repeating in their head um but i think you know what you've just described is definitely a sexual assault um there's there's not actually much gray area there at all um and i'm just so sorry that you have to carry that i feel like telling my story and then talking to someone like you who is advocating for change I feel like we are the change makers. Grace Tame is a change maker. Saxon is a change maker. And I feel like it is so important to share these things. And because the documentary states that 2 million women and 700,000 men have experienced sexual assault. I mm. mean, how many of those go unreported? 
Yeah, well, the vast majority. Um, and, you know, thank you for speaking so completely without stigma or shame. I think that is just so powerful. And as you say, like change makers can be like on this big national stage. Um, they can be hosting podcasts. They can be in your own families, you know, and that's um, I think Grace really said it so well when she said like, that we're talking about a domino effect and every domino is crucial to that. Um, so, I mean, the vast majority don't report. Really, it's around 90%. Um, and, you know, we're getting 85 sexual assaults reported daily in Australia. Um, now, many of them are historical. So they're not all just sexual sexual assaults that have just happened. Um, and I think it's really important for people to realise that there is no time limit on reporting. Mm. Um, you know, obviously, if you're in a position to report sooner, it's better because there may be more evidence if you if you want to actually pursue charges. Um, but for a lot of people, the most important thing is actually just telling someone and not carrying it silently. And that, and that feeling that, you know, that nobody could know this and still think highly of you or still love you or, you know, I mean, there's just the level of shame that victim survivors have had to carry for so long is just titanic. And you saw that a lot at the Women's March for Justice. Mm -hmm. um, so many people, um, I think anyone who attended one of those, did you end up going to no, one of the I marches? No, I didn't. No, I would have loved to have gone though. It was really incredible um, because you just had people of all ages, I mean, particularly women, but there were also um, quite a few men there um, who were literally stopping each other in the streets, um, some in tears, saying, I have held on to this for months, years, decades, and this is the first time I've told anyone and telling a complete stranger what's just happened. It was just like this absolute sort of like um ah oh, just a, a tsunami of disclosure and of bonding and sharing it was really astonishing and that's i guess what you know with the series what we wanted to do and, and obviously we you know we started this last year so it was sort of like the, the end of 2021 which was the big year for for this to really hit australia this conversation about sexual violence um we just we wanted to keep this going because you know the great um harvard psychiatrist judith herman says trauma wants to be forgotten and you can have these really huge, you know, um, cultural moments where trauma comes right up to the surface and everyone is talking about things that have been unspeakable hmm. for decades. And then suddenly it goes away and it goes away sometimes for decades longer until it gets rediscovered by the next generation and everyone's like, why did we stop talking about that? Well, for a very good reason because trauma is difficult to remember. And again, to quote um, Judith Herman, you know, all the perpetrator asks is for us to do nothing, whereas the victim asks us to share in their pain, share the burden of remembering, and it's difficult, but it's so necessary for our society to remember and share that pain. I think with reporting, I reported two days after, which is probably uncommon 
for someone to report so quickly, but I was hysterical and I just knew that something that it wasn't right. Mm. But I think with reporting, the issue is, is that as you would know, that when you report a sexual assault, the ramifications to a perpetrator are literally virtually zero because oftentimes there is nothing, it, it's hearsay. I, I remember the detective saying to me, Anita, it's he said, she said, he said, she said. And in a court of law, that is very, 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 very hard to actually mm. say that this happened. Mm. What other reasons do you find that people don't report their assault? Mm. Gosh, I mean, so many. I think that... um Partly, you know, it can be that sense of like, oh, was it was it even serious enough to warrant, you know, um, an assault um, that they may feel like they consented to some but not all of what happened. Um, they might be afraid of being ostracised socially, especially if it's someone inside their friend group or, you know, and particularly they may be um, frightened of consequences um, for what might happen to them or to the person who did it to them if it's an offender, if it, the offender is a family member or a partner. Um, I think, you know, there can be some instances, unfortunately, where it's not the first time and where they have reported to police before and it's been a negative experience um, and so they've been sort of, you know, warned off doing that. Um, I think there, there can be a feeling that what's the point? You know, is this really worth it? Shouldn't I just move on? Um, and, of course, there can be fear that the perpetrator will retaliate somehow. But I think, you know, just um, going back to what you were saying about that you you reported two days later and that's that's unusual, I think what's interesting now to watch and, of course, when we see, like, the reporting rates going up, there's always that question of, is the prevalence increasing or just the reporting or is it a bit of both? Mm. But anecdotally, certainly it seems that particularly um, in the last few years since we have been having a very uh, public discussion about this, we are seeing more people willing to report um, and who want to report and who see the value in doing that. Um, in New South Wales, of course, there's the um, there's the SARO reporting system where you can make a report but you don't have to pursue charges but it goes on the record. Yeah. And that could be actually putting your offender's name on the record or just putting the experience if you don't know who they were um, such that if someone else reports later, at least there's a record and that there's potentially a history that gets built up. Um but I think, you know, the victim survivors who do report and, you know, I'd be interested to hear your reasons too, but a lot of them will say they were tired of staying silent. It was harming them to stay silent, um, that they wanted to inspire others to feel like they could come forward. Um, they wanted to stop the person from harming other people so, such, so much as that is possible, um, you know, obviously contingent on a lot of factors. Um so there's there's all sorts of reasons why people don't report, but there's also lots of reasons why people do report. Um, and I think it's amazing, especially seeing people deciding that that assault that happened to them 20 years ago, they want to report that now, not necessarily because they want someone jailed or because they want or whatever, they just need to have it known and they need to have it known officially. Yeah. And that's, 
I don't even remember why I did, to be honest. Um, I just remember I a similar act had happened to me or the same act had happened to me when I was about 24 or 25 mm. and I it was only in hindsight about seven years later that I realised that back then that was also assault. And mm. to have that happen twice in 10 years is very scary. I also just wanted to put it on the record. I never pressed charges. It wasn't something that I wanted to do. Um, I was, this person was an expat and I didn't want to destroy his life from one bad mistake. But since saying that and having a lot of therapy, people have said to me, but Anita, he has he has caused you so much pain and so much grief um, mm. that I'm still dealing with. Mm. And a year later, a year, you know, a year and a month later. And so, but in my mind, I was like, I don't want to get someone deported or send them to jail mm. for one night of drunken misbehavior. Mm. But the option is for me there still to mm. press charges if I feel that I want to. The only thing that stops me is that it's three years in a court system and mm. I worry that, like I mentioned before, the he said, she said is going to mm. be the issue that stops him from being charged, mm. from being found guilty. And, I mean, even worse, I guess, in the, in the court system, and I think the um – Saxon Mullins talks about this so powerfully and as does um, Brittany Higgins is that it's actually not even he said because he has the right to remain silent the whole time. So it's literally all she said, um, you know, which is what did you do to demonstrate that you did not consent? And, of course, with enthusiastic consent laws now in place, that's a bit different. But, you know, I think what was so powerful about um, Brittany Higgins and her advocacy around this was that, you know, that that doorstop interview where she said, I don't blame the media for calling it the Brittany Higgins trial because that's what it was. I was the one on trial. He did not get asked anything about his history. He didn't get any asked any questions about his character. He sat there silent the whole time. So he can maintain his innocence, not just in a legal sense, but in a um in in the view of the public, in terms of like there's no one's sort of like sifting through his history. And in fact, a lot of that is inadmissible, mm-hmm. even. You know, you hear this so often in um in rape trials, sexual assault trials, that there may be even be other charges that are being pursued in other cases that are inadmissible to that case. Um, So there's, you know, there's really significant reasons why people may feel like they don't want to open themselves up to that process. Um, And, and I think, you know, Saxon also talks about when she, when at first, when the, the conviction came through and, and he was guilt, he was, you know, called guilty before the retrial, that afterwards it wasn't like she went out and partied and, you know, had a celebratory dinner. She went to the toilets and cried, you know, like it's not, there aren't any winners that come out of this, you know, but there can be 
I guess for some, a type of vindication and also a sense that, well, that person cannot just continue to do this with impunity. Um, but the cost is too high. And I don't know how many more inquiries and law reform reviews we need um, for governments to really act to reform the way that this occurs. You know, um, like there is no, there is no reason aside from the fact that we live in a rape culture that victims should be the one punished for trying to protect the public. Yeah. You know, like, which is ultimately what, it, what is, what is happening a lot, for a lot of victims. This is not about punishment. This is about making sure that this person does not continue to harm other people, does not become a serial predator who believes that they can do this and they'll get away with it. Yeah. It's, it is extremely scary that you said the word, the term, we live in a rape culture. And I would love to talk to you about consent again, because how on earth do we teach our young men and women, our kids about consent and what consent is? And before you kind of dive into that, we did have that ad, that milkshake ad, and that does come up in the documentary, the milkshake ad, which showed a woman mm. putting cream over on a man's face and he didn't want it. Mm. I mean, what were they thinking? Well, I mean, I don't know. I mean, obviously there was, there's the government and their, you know, their, or the former government and their ideas about what makes consent education. And then there are the people that made those videos and they were two separate people. I mean, it was two separate groups. Um, <laughs> and I think that, so, you know, for a long time, we haven't felt comfortable talking about sex. Um, we've talked in, you know, euphemisms about sex. We've talked in, we haven't even felt comfortable teaching our kids how to name their genitalia, you know, like, um, so I, I'm not surprised that that, and particularly coming out of the Morrison government, that, that, that was the, the campaign, um, you know, there's also been very strong, um, impact, uh, influence of religion. Um, particularly on the coalition government that we've had for the last, we had for you know almost a decade. Um, what I think we haven't, and and are only just coming to terms with, is that you know, kids twelve and above, the majority of them have watched porn. They have watched not just regular porn, people having sex, close-ups on penetration, they have probably watched violent porn. And when we just have a euphemism about a milkshake and rubbing cream in someone's face, what we're not teaching them, well, A, we're not giving any context to the sort of stuff that they've been seeing, um, but B, we're not actually saying if you are in this situation, you're on the couch, you're kissing, it's, you know, it's developing. How do you indicate that you don't want it to go further? Mm. Show them exactly what you should do in a situation where emotions and hormones are so heightened, where you can feel so much pressure to act in a certain way. You really need to have that example in your head to go, oh, I've seen how people do this. 
I know how to do this and I know how to do it in such a way that I will feel okay about and that I may, you know, and in such a way that I won't feel like I'm hurting this person's feelings or there's all these things that are in your mind when you're thinking about how do I, how do I retract consent? How do I slow this situation down? And we need to be explicit about that because the fact is like kids are seeing plenty of explicit material about sex on their own generally um, and sometimes compulsively. Um, so if we're, if we're just delivering to them euphemisms, it's so outside of their interaction with sexual material, so irrelevant that it's just a total waste of money or worse, proof that adults just have no idea. You know, which is what teenagers think anyway. (laughs) I'm getting ready for my five-year-old to like, you know, say the same to me. But, you know, my five-year-old, for example, you know, um, she started learning about consent in playgroup. She's learned about consent since before she could talk. Um, You know, she got to playgroup age two and they were learning about body boundaries. Like she could barely talk and she was already saying no to, you know, hugging a family friend or whatever and and literally calling out behavior from other kids who she felt you know were not touching her appropriately um wow you know like the consent conversation now is it's just going to be so second nature to kids growing up now particularly because you know thanks to the work of so many and you know including chanel contos We've got, you know, nationally mandated consent classes. They're going to be in from kindergarten, you know, onwards. And obviously it doesn't start with sexual consent. It starts with what do you, how do you want your body to be touched? And that's, you know, can be anything from a touch on the shoulder to a hug. What feels good? What doesn't feel good? How do you ask for help? How do you signal that something is not right? Mm. Um, and then of course, What's great about the consent education as as kids get older is that it goes from just what feels good to you, what doesn't feel good to you, to what sorts of power dynamics are we dealing with? Where, what happens when there's an imbalance of power in the room, and which may be an imbalance in age, it could be an imbalance in status, um, it could be any type of power imbalance that may make the issue of consent a lot more difficult, where you may feel pressured to say yes to something that you don't want to, you know, and and how do gender stereotypes come into all of this? All of that starts happening, you know, in high school. They start learning about gender stereotypes um, and and how that influences the decisions that they make, you know, both boys and girls um, and what they think they should want versus what they might actually want for themselves. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think, you know, in the series, Richie Hardcore, who's a, you know, amazing educator with an incredible name, um, who's also <laughs> a fighter, <laughs> who sounds like a porn actor. It just really a- does. <laughs> <laughs> but he's actually a Muay Thai fighter, and I think that's, uh, you know, that's what that's he's got. That's even better. <laughs> Um, he just had a kid. I don't think his kid's surname is hardcore, but anyway, um, <laughs> but you know, there he is. He's this tatted up bloke and, um, and he's going and talking to schools about how compulsive it was for him to watch porn in his twenties. And he's talking to boys about how does it feel when you jerk off to porn? How do you feel afterwards? You know, and he's using that terminology because it's, that's how boys talk to each other. Like I we love don't that, actually, isn't it great? Like, it's just like. We don't need to be prissy about this because culture is not prissy. Culture is serving up a daily diet, an hourly diet of hardcore 
often violent and unfortunately misogynistic porn. If you can't talk in the types of language that boys and girls are talking about in the playground, then you are irrelevant. And what he was saying to these boys is like, he was asking them, what kind of pressure do you feel under when you're, you know, you're in your eight, year nine, you start to hear about people having sex. Are you feeling pressured to lose your virginity? Is that still a thing? And these boys are like, yeah, of course. Like you start to feel like you're not good enough if you haven't had sex. And some might say that it doesn't matter how you get it. You just have to have had it. And that's that's a movie cultural thing as well, like pop culture. You know, you watch movies, American Pie, hello. I mean, those kind of films, that is literally, it is the, the, the trophy, the award to take, to lose your virginity. And that's bloody scary. Yeah. Not with someone that you necessarily have feelings for or where you feel like this is, this is a sort of special thing, you know. I mean, and not that we need to get into this idea of like virginity is my (laughs) special gift, you know, but it's it's like it's my flower and they're taking it but like sex is meaningful you know and I think part of um there's is a bit of a discussion I think at the moment about what has sexual liberation meant over the past 40 or 50 years um have we you know so-called like liberated sex so much that we've kind of reduced it to the status of a handshake you know like we you know it's one thing to say you can have one night stands and it doesn't mean you're a slut that's absolutely true um but it's another thing to say that you know Sex doesn't have to be meaningful, you know. Um, we can just we can have as much sex as we like, and and whatever kind of sex we like without repercussions. But emotionally, that's just not true. Yeah, like sex is meaningful. It's always been meaningful, and it's and always not emotional. Sense. Yeah, it's always emotional. You know, there's a reason why cultures going back thousands of years have made sex such a like central part of their mythology and of their symbolism, it is a hugely meaningful part of personal and, you know, human interaction. Um, and I think that the the last 40 years of sexual liberation, part of what sexual liberation has come to mean is a willingness to do anything and everything. Mm. And I think, for you know, sorry to be sort of like explicit, but, you know, given that we've just talked about doing that, um, you know, the ones who are being penetrated carry the highest risk in terms of pain in terms of injury um and and the fact is that even though many women love having like huge sexual variety and may may enjoy all sorts of like really edgy sexual practices there's a lot of other women who feel like they should like that they should agree to joking they should agree to anal on the first date even though they don't want that i know um, <laughs> well, so I know my face. No, because I can't believe that people that that people would expect you to to do that. I mean, sex is is supposed to be this. It, it's supposed to be joining together like two people who, not not necessarily like two people who love each other. You know, yeah. it's it's not supposed to be like that. But it's not supposed to be this like. What I was going to say, wine and die, wheel and deal, or like you know, just an exchange. It's not. It's it's not. It can't be. It's not a possible thing when you're intimate with somebody, no matter the circumstances. Yeah, and I think you know, there's definitely um, more of a like um, higher kind of degree of what they call socio um, sexuality among men who who are happy having like more sexual partners but even among you know um boys and men that that I've spoken to and who who I know 
can similarly feel kind of used up by sexual experiences where they where they have sex and someone ghosts them or when they you know where it's where it's looked where it's dealt with as though it's meaningless um so i guess what and i I think what we're seeing with gen z now so-called um which is obviously after gen y uh which is our generation i'm presuming that we share gen y but i I might be wrong i'm a millennial millennial i'm 36 okay right (laughs) yeah Millennial is Gen Y. I'm 39, so yeah. I think we're both. Oh, yeah, we're the same age. What are you talking about? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, but Gen Y, I think definitely, um, I think they drunk the Kool-Aid a bit on on what it means to be sexually liberated. Um, Gen Z, I think, uh, well, surveys are showing they're having less sex. And when they've when people have interviewed Gen Z people, uh, they found that actually the less sex is not because they're prudish. It's that they want better sex. They don't just want any sex. In terms of consent being a complex theory, can you explain that more? Because in the doco, you say, you explicitly say consent is complex. Mm. And which I usually hate that term because complex usually means um, too difficult for me to explain properly. Um, <laughs> and I think it's often a term that's used by uh, particularly politicians to say, don't you worry about this. It's complex. Let the big boys handle it. You know, um, so I, I I said it, but I also don't like it um, as a word because I think that, you know, really if something is complex, well, you need to find a simple way to explain it. However, it is complex. <laughs> and that's because of everything that we've talked about and because of culture and because of cultural expectations, because of power imbalances, because of gender stereotypes, all this stuff. But what I mean by it is that I think, especially I think we really learnt this during Me Too um, and and certain cases that came to light during Me Too, which were not perhaps didn't cross the line into explicit sexual violence, but were more about unwanted sex. Mm-hmm. Um, and what I've found confounding, I guess, is that you can have two people in a room who have become engaged sexually and both people can have completely different ideas of what was agreed to um, or how it went. One person can think it went great, another person, the other person there can think that they were assaulted. Um, and so I think the the complexity is in perception, is in the fact that we are really not acculturated to communicate during sex. It's like talking will just ruin the mood, that it should be just about the vibe, like the unspoken vibe. Um, and it's complex because consent isn't just about saying yes or no, um, that it's about the context that it happened in. Like was there a serious power imbalance? Was it a threatening environment? Did one person feel pressure to do something that they didn't want to do? Did they feel like they might be humiliated for refusing so that's why I think it's really important. Like when we say that we're in the middle of a, a new revolution um, and this time it's all about consent, what we mean by consent is not just saying yes or no. What we're meaning is that when we talk about consent, we're also talking about power and culture and all the ways that we've been acculturated to do and accept things that can harm us, but also all the ways in which power has over time but also i think you know for millennia been so central to sexual attraction and that you know 
in order to understand how that works and how that influences our choices, we need to talk about it more openly um, and to think and to reflect on our own sexual histories um, about how did power influence, how did power or expectations or culture influence certain decisions that I made, mm. either decisions that I made to go along with something or decisions that I made to coerce someone to do something um, or even to not to seek their consent at all and to and to know in the back of my mind that they didn't want to do this but sort of do it anyway and not think it was such a big deal. All of those sorts of reflections are really important. I think that uh, many people have been having those reflections for the last few years. So we're not at the we're not at the bottom of this hill. Mm. We're kind of like a third of the way up. Um, you know, but like still can't quite see the peak. You know, there's a lot of climbing to do. I think one thing that is kind of has struck me in this conversation is how the change is happening now. And people are reporting now more than ever. Um, but as we mentioned before, there is that rape culture. The thing that I actually find really interesting, and I've discussed this with my mum, and my mum is a boomer. And that boomer generation, they grew up with parents who didn't discuss sex at all. Sex was shameful. I mean, my mum grew up in a Catholic household and to her sex was shameful, which then carried on to us saying that sex was shameful. And that's not the case in every situation I know, but I do, I do believe that our generation, Gen Y, and beyond, we are going to be making that change because we are, aren't afraid to talk about it. And I do feel like it's almost as though the boomer generation, they were brought up to, to not speak about it, that it was a marital, it was absolutely a marital, a thing between a husband and wife or mm. between partners. And I think that is something to be said for our generation who are leading the way of saying this is not right we need to educate we need to say let's make a change and mm. i think that's absolutely incredible yeah uh, totally and you know this i mean it's still certainly i have you know um peers in a parent group who still won't call like a vulva a vulva um you know like so there's still like this there's still squeamishness um you know amongst our generation and Look, like, you know, as to how far that will go, you know, how how much that will be eradicated over time, I don't know. Um, but what we do know is that it's not just on parents anymore and the kind of education that kids are getting either, you know, which is not always positive, mind you, um, mm -hmm. but through either social media or from school or from peers, um, it's far more varied, let's put it that way. Um <laughs> and um but but is more explicit. Um mm -hmm. and the access to that information is obviously greater, um, whereas it was, you know, obviously access to information was quite centralised, um, both when we were growing up, like young kids. Absolutely. Growing up, like it's like there was, the, you know, there was the media, there was um, there was school, there was parents, there was church, you know, um, and there wasn't much else in terms of accessing information. And, you know, when we go back and look at, um, in the series, we go back and look at what passed for sex education, you know, a lot of it was mostly about reproducing or avoiding reproducing. <laughs> <laughs> 
Or what How happens scary. to you if you reproduce irresponsibly? <laughs> I was so petrified for so many years that I would, yes. honestly, I don't know how, I, I know, I know so many of my friends and I'm sure you feel the exact same way. You have sex and then like you pray for your period because you're so fearful of falling pregnant if it's unwanted and i'm i'm obviously saying in a, a situation where you're 16 17 hell sometimes 36 yeah <laughs> and you're kind of like this is not something you know you 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 are ingrained that fear that is such a that is so true and also i actually truly believe that sex education at school i think we learn it too young i actually think the reason i say that is because i remember learning it in primary school and kind of giggling and not really paying attention and going oh erection you know oh penis you know and in high school you've got the hormones you've got all of that kind of thing I think it it's a great time to learn in high school, but I actually think there should be adult sex education because as I've grown up, I feel like I don't know anything about my body. And for years yeah, and totally. years and years, exactly. Even, you know, sometimes, you know, lots of women I've spoken to and, and myself included until recently, but like didn't know that the vagina was, you know, that's the internal organ. The vulva is the external organ, you know. Who knew that, right? Yes. Uh, like, how do we not know the names of our own genitalia? That like, is you know, scary because I don't think I knew that. See, like, and that's not like a shameful thing. That's just because no. we're not taught. And then, of course, this is really um, problematic when it comes to help seeking and particularly children where there's been some sort of sexual violence against children and children can't name where it happened to them it happened on my misha or my muffy or like you know that doesn't my, mean my anything. Zhuzh, yeah my juju my yeah. yeah like what does that mean um you know so it's really it doesn't make it doesn't keep kids innocent to keep them you know um ignorant about about genitalia but yeah i mean i take your point like there's there's certain ways and i think that we're becoming much more sophisticated about age appropriate learning exactly you know it needs to be age appropriate age appropriate learning so that like kids are ready to take on that information and won't just sort of like titter and then never want to hear about it again because they just feel so awkward about it that's it and people are laughing and it's it's embarrassing and it's it feels like you don't want to talk about you and and you do you grow up with some sort of uh shame in your body and i i truly believe that i feel like we we've and I'm not saying that our parents have let us down in that and, and the generations before us, but I feel like we can now really make a change in the way that we are educated, particularly in consent, particularly in that that kind of the rape culture and in just sexual education as a whole. I just think that there's so totally. much room to improve. But adults absolutely need education on this front. And that that's like I think my favourite my favorite in terms of, you know, um, something that feels hopeful um, seen in the series or segment is um, this group of men in Townsville in episode three. And they're all there with um, this like sex ed. It's basically like a, an opportunity for sex education, but it's like, you know, they've got beer and cheese and whatever there. And they're there ostensibly to paint a vulva, you know, and they're having to play to make a vulva out of clay. And, um, 
But in amongst all of this, I mean, all of that's sort of like a bit of a strategic distraction from what they're there to actually do, which is to talk about what sort of sexual expectations they feel they're under, what do they feel, you know, their partners um, or the people that they've had sex with are under, um, and where did they learn that, you know, and and is that a reasonable expectation? And this one guy, God bless him, um, who's like, well, you know, I always thought that like a woman had an orgasm until she'd squirted. And the other guys are like, where did you learn that? And he's like, oh, probably porn. And um, and the one of the educators sort of like uh, jumps in and just says like, just so you know, like squirting is pretty much mostly a phenomenon of porn. The vast majority of women do not squirt. So maybe just like get that out of your head right now. <laughs> and it's like, You know, these guys are just there having this conversation that, like, you know, 20 years ago is is literally unthinkable. Like in Townsville, like in far north. That is like Australian, far north Queensland, Australian men. Also, you know, a lot of Australian men don't feel comfortable in sharing their feelings or their concerns. 100%. And there's, there's men from across different cultures there. And different age groups. And at the end, one one of the guys is like, isn't it amazing that we can like all sit down together and give them just, you know, some beer and some cheese, like have this conversation where it's not, you know, guys talk about sex, but they're, they're often they're talking about sex in a way that's got a lot of bravado. There's got a lot of, you know, front and performative nature to it. There's nothing performative about what happens in this room. You know, it is just purely about sharing and exploring and I was just like who would have known that a vulgar drawing class in Townsville would be like the you know source of so much hope <laughs> <laughs> and who would have known that I would ever say that in, my own- in your career <laughs> in your life <laughs> but also there's actually there's a there's an interesting thing and I was actually kind of worried to to bring this up but i'm actually really curious to hear your opinion on this so i've got several male friends who are on tinder and and they're on bumble and they're on hinge they actually petrified they're Mm. petrified when dating and petrified when going out and and meeting up with a girl and maybe having sex with her or, you know, alluding to that fact, they are scared that it's going to turn around that are they have they have they drunk too much? Have they, you know, there is actually a fear now in the culture of of young adult men or adult men that it could be misinterpreted. And I don't really have an opinion on that in terms of how I feel about it because I don't feel educated enough, but I'm just really curious to hear what you think about that. Mm. Well, I think that, like, we should definitely talk about it openly and not not shame them for having the wrong feeling, like, oh, well, you shouldn't be scared of false allegations because they only happen in a minority of cases or, Mm. you know, all that, that. That can be part of education to say, Look, you know, like the the chance that you're going to have a false allegation made against you, even though that's not necessarily just what they're afraid of, um, is low. But when you've got laws introduced that really talk about, well, is it consent if someone was really drunk out of their mind and didn't have the ability to consent? That is, yeah, that 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 is. I can imagine how that would be scary in the dating scene, where it's like, well, what what is the level? What is the level of you know intoxication that would invalidate a consent? Exactly. Um, a lot of that hasn't been worked out yet, and that's I think also um, 
one of the most important things to come out of the series, aside from really, you know, laying bare the sorts of rape myths that so many of us internalize, um, is that a lot of young guys want to talk about this, can feel excluded or alienated from the discussion, um, can feel as though they're pretty much only included in the discussion as potential perpetrators um, and not even as someone who may experience assault themselves or may have experienced assault themselves. Absolutely. Um, um, So I think, you know, those fears should be taken seriously. I agree. And if we don't take them seriously, then the allure of personalities like perhaps not so much Andrew Tate because he's so blatant and he's also being held in custody at the moment. Um, but, um, Terrible example. <laughs> yeah, so he's not, you know, he's not exactly um, broadcasting on a regular basis now. But but people like him. There's always going to be another, you know, you like lop the head off one and another always. one grows. Yeah. Um, but people like Jordan Peterson, um, others who who say things like, you know, feminism is basically um, a crock of shit and everything that, you know, you're hearing about you being a, a potential predator is just um, a bunch of horse shit that you should ignore um, and therefore you should also ignore everything that, like, goes along with feminist politics or sexual consent or all those sorts of things. So it's if we're we're sort of on the bridge, we're, like, I think we're on the edge of, doing this in a really wrong way that actually creates a very powerful backlash. Um, And I think the boy, um, one of the boys who is like an exemplary young man um, who is very active in this area at his own high school, when he said to Richie, you know, we've had a lot of speakers come in and talk about this um, and you're the first one who hasn't spoken down to us who's actually spoken to the boys as though they are worth engaging, not just, you know, trying to warn them against, you know, perpetrating violence. That's that's a really bad sign. That's a lot of education that is being wasted and a lot of money and time that's being wasted and a lot of opportunities for boys and men to be drawn across to this, you know, common fight for whether it be gender equality or, you know, crushing the patriarchy, whatever you want to call it, um, uh, which is, you know, various different things to various different people, it's uh, um, instead of that opportunity being taken, we're potentially driving them into, um, you know, the arms and YouTube channels of of boys and men who want to absolutely turn back time to when, you know, real men took control of women, real men didn't have to ask, real men just, just, just took what they wanted. Mm-hmm. Hmm. So let's be very careful that we don't do that. Why do you think there is a rape culture now? Why do you think it is so prevalent? Well, gosh, it has been for a long time. Um, uh, or do you because, think we're just seeing it now because it's... Oh, we're definitely just seeing it now. Yes, yeah. absolutely. Um, I mean, the whole basis of our common law system is that it's better for ten innocent, ten guilty men to go free than one innocent man to be jailed. Like that is the literal basis of our common law system. Um, and and no one wants to see um, innocent people jailed. There's no question about that. Um, but the 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 way that that creates or you know reinforces a culture of disbelief. 
um, towards women that it is better to disbelieve than to allow a false allegation to get through the gates. Um, it is, and and a very long history of misogyny um, that I think I would argue, and this is like really a story for another time, but I would argue that like I think it's gotten much more brazen as the fight for, you know, um, women's rights and the rights of non-binary people and of, you know, trans and gay lesbian um, and queer people have, you know, advanced. I think the backlash to that has become more ferocious um, and more brazen. Mm-hmm. Um and so I think that perhaps it's it's it, it's possibly more visible now than it ever has been. Um, but certainly, I mean, gosh, this is this is centuries of um, acculturation that we're trying to undo at the moment. Um, and sometimes we can do it in ways that aren't. Well, we can attempt to do it in ways that are not very sophisticated and and that 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 are driven perhaps too much by anger. Um, you know, which was a lot of what drove me too, which is, was a, anger is an ex- excellent energy. It drives things forward. And not only that, you can't just say to people, don't be angry when they're angry. Like that doesn't work. Mm. But the anger that's, you know, come up about me too, that was, you know, and the common line for a few years after was sit down men and listen. That's <laughs> a 14 year old boy who hasn't really properly stood up yet <laughs> and done any talking. Um, that sounds really unfair. It's like, well, since when was I in a powerful position? That they don't like, you know, to understand the history of like, you know, power imbalances and gender stereotypes, and and you know, and the history of feminism. When you're a fourteen or fifteen year old boy, that you don't have that understanding, and it feels irrelevant to your life. Of course. So, you know, and I understand though that like a lot of women were like, we're sick of men like tr- taking over these conversations and perpetuating this violence, you know. So it makes total sense that that was the response. And yes, boys and men did need to listen to girls and women talk about this for a while. Um, but if we keep on having just a one way conversation, you know, not even a conversation, just basically a monologue, yeah. um, target boys and men, um, it's not going to work. No. It's not going to achieve what we want it to achieve. And I think we have to keep our eye on the ball. What do we want out of this? What is the culture we want to create? How can we, like, you know, channel anger and frustration and hurt into creating what we want, which is a loving relational culture? Yeah. Well, this has been certainly so eye-opening. I could talk to you for hours. Me too. <laughs> yeah, we always have. I <laughs> know oh, we really have. We've had a few technical issues today. We we have to say, but it's been it's been totally worth it. And this documentary, asking for it, I just think I think everybody needs to watch it. Everybody needs to sit up and pay attention. And I think that change is coming. I feel. I feel like enough people are gonna. St- stand up and I feel as as a survivor myself if it has happened to you I'm guaranteeing you it's happened to others and speaking up and talking about it is literally the only way that we can make change absolutely that's a, you know what grace tame says violence thrives in silence yeah Absolutely. Well, this has been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for coming on this morning. I am so thrilled to have you here and everybody has to watch Asking For It.
Thank you, Anita. And thank you for being so candid about your own experiences and just hosting so beautifully. Thanks for calling the Entertainment Hotline with Anita Annabelle. You can find us on Instagram at the entertainment underscore hotline pod or visit us at chatter.com.au. The Entertainment Hotline with Anita Annabelle is a proud Chatter podcast.